Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the insulting behavior of a supposed U.S. ally, Saudi Arabia, which now, after 50 years of American support and protection, the country's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, is refusing to talk to President Biden to help lower the price of oil, which the Saudis have done for previous presidents, and, on top of that, now the Saudis are talking with the Chinese to pay for Saudi oil with the yuan, not the dollar. Joining us is David Hurst, the editor-in-chief of Middle East Eye, who formerly was the chief foreign leader writer of The Guardian, former associate foreign editor, European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent and island correspondent of The Guardian. We will discuss his latest article at Middle East Eye, Putin's War Means Mohammed bin Salman Has Biden Over a Barrel, and actions the U.S. could take to get the attention of the arrogant and entitled Crown Prince, who is dissing the United States. Then we'll look into Trump's war on American democracy, which is aimed at making sure Republicans will win in 2022, and that he will come back in 2024 by targeting the country's election apparatus and installing loony loyalists as secretaries of state in key swing states, thus ensuring that... Stop the steal, Trump will steal the next elections. Joining us is Stephen Harper, a professor at Northwestern University and a regular contributor to The American Lawyer. He blogs at The Belly of the Beast, and we'll discuss his article at Common Dreams, The War on Democracy is Here. Trump is using America's democratic process to destroy democracy from within. Then finally, we'll examine some good news for a change on the labor front and speak with Stephen Greenhouse, who was a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014, where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor, And we'll discuss his article at The Guardian, U.S. unions see unusually promising moment amid wave of victories. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from the UK is David Hurst, the editor of Middle East Eye, who formerly was the chief foreign leader writer of The Guardian, former associate foreign editor, former European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent and Ireland correspondent. And his latest article at Middle East Eye is Putin's war means Mohammed bin Salman has Biden over a barrel. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Hurst. Hi, and yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, and it does seem extraordinarily ungrateful that after 50 years of U.S. support for Saudi Arabia and arming them to the teeth, that Mohammed bin Salman doesn't return Biden's calls and won't pick up the phone when Biden calls. 
it's you know obviously insulting to not just President Biden but to America itself. And now apparently the Saudis are in negotiations with the Chinese to have the Chinese buy Saudi oil in their yuan in their currency, which is again an attack on the dominance of the dollar, which is oil has always been traded in dollars. So what's happening with MBS here? We know that Biden has tried to ostracize him, and obviously MBS is using the leverage he has over the price of oil. But at this point, he seems to be stiffing Biden and continued to stiff Biden. And Biden even mentioned that maybe he'll he'll make a visit to Saudi Arabia, and, and we haven't heard any more about that. Sounds like the Saudis did not welcome that idea. Yeah, I mean, the relationship between the two has always been rocky. I mean, until three weeks ago, Biden made, uh, until uh, the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine, Biden really made no effort to contact uh, the crown prince and said that he would just deal with his father. But as we all know, the crown prince is the de facto ruler and the next king of uh, Saudi Arabia. So um, there's that. There's also his murderous campaign in Yemen, which will the UN said will take... Uh, 250 million lives, 270 million lives uh, by the end of the year, uh, 77 million lives by the end of the year, sorry. And the Houthis are continuing to fire uh, very accurate drones and missiles at uh, Saudi's southern airports at will. And America has withdrawn uh, the Patriots. So there's quite a lot of history between the two. That said, Biden hasn't been as tough on MBS as his rhetoric has uh, suggested in that, yes, he did release um, the CIA report. He published the CIA report, which strongly suspected that uh, Mohammed bin Salman had actually um, ordered the murder of the Saudi journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi. But Biden did not... Uh, refer the matter to a UN investigation. So it's been very rhetorical and really very little action. Uh, when it comes now to Biden trying to consciously lower the price of a barrel of oil, which at one stage last week threatened to go into you know, $200 uh, a barrel up to nearly $300 a barrel territory, uh, Saudi Arabia now is simply saying the boot's on the other foot. You need us more than we need you. And the release of these talks, which has actually been going on for some time with China, is, I think, just another card that they're playing um, just simply to get uh, a negotiating card to, to, to get Biden to um, uh, give him things that he needs. I mean, according to the Wall Street Journal, and they're normally quite accurate on Saudi relations with Washington, uh, what MBS is wanting uh, is uh, more help with uh, the war on Yemen. He also wants uh, legal immunity uh, in the states against uh, uh, actions which have been taken by other Saudi nationals, in particular an intelligence officer called Saad al-Jabri, who was himself the target of one of MBS's hit squads in Toronto, 
uh, except they were um, uncovered at Toronto Airport. And he's now suing um, MBS in, uh, in Washington. And so the Saudi prince now wants legal immunity uh, in America. So there's, 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 there's quite a big various agenda. But basically what uh, the crown prince wants is legitimacy. And, and he is going to lever uh, America's interest in trying to lower the price of oil to get what he wants from America. I don't think Biden would go as far as giving him legal immunity uh, in America. But... We've known many times before that Biden and 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 uh, the UK, for that matter, uh, are deeply involved in Saudi Arabia. They could, at a moment's notice, ground Saudi uh, jets bombing Yemen uh, because they provide all the spare parts and also all the personnel as well. Uh, but they don't go as far as that. So I I I think all of these stories are. Are levers and uh, their cards being played in a sort of long-term negotiation. And again, I'm speaking with David Hurst, who is in the UK, where he's the editor of Middle East Eye. He was formerly the chief foreign leader writer of The Guardian, former associate foreign editor, European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent, and Ireland correspondent of The Guardian. And his latest article at Middle East Eye is Putin's war means Mohammed bin Salman has Biden over a barrel. So it's got to be excruciating for Biden, though, to have to sort of try and make nice with this psychotic punk who is clearly, I mean, he's not just brutal in the way that they murdered and dismembered Shoji, which he clearly authorized, but they just executed, what, 81 men for various crimes, not exactly clear what their crimes were, and, and certainly the judicial system there is basically kangaroo courts in any case, and he's cracking down quite brutally on any domestic, any potential domestic opposition. So is there anything you can do in terms of the public relations side of it? I mean, does he care how Americans feel about him? You know, I don't think he does. Um, uh, well, how Americans think. I don't think he cares how, how, how Biden feels about him. I think, you know, American foreign policy has got very little to do with values anyway. And, you know, America is supporting Egypt um, in, 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 in a crackdown uh, on its opposition. And the killing, uh, the, the execution of, of, of 81 people, which is the greatest number on, on a single day for, for some time, a lot of that's got to do with Iran. About half of them are Shia from the eastern province. And... That also has to do with the fact that, uh, that, that Biden is on the cusp of making that nuclear deal with Iran in, in Vienna. And uh, another of MBS's demands is that the U.S. support um, uh, uh, does more to support uh, the Saudi civil nuclear program um, as the, the deal with uh, Iran would, would actually support the Iranian uh, civil nuclear program, not necessarily enrichment, but the program itself. And, and also, Saudi has, has, has just cut off talks uh, uh, with Iran. I mean, it's, it's got to be said that there's an awful lot of fluctuation going on and people changing positions day by day. So I don't take a huge amount of notice about how these positions are right now because it all could all change tomorrow. It's got to be said that... Um, 
Biden replacing Trump changed quite a lot in Saudi foreign policy. Uh, they stopped the blockade on Qatar. Um, uh, the Emiratis started talking to and in now investing in uh, their regional rival, Turkey, uh, uh, Erdogan. So the post-Trump effect had quite a strong uh, uh, effect on the Gulf states, uh, and it will go up and down and up and down. I don't think Biden can do anything to change uh, Mohammed bin Salman's personality. Uh, his interview, his latest interview with The Atlantic, made it absolutely clear he'd learned absolutely nothing from, from the past. And his basic message was, you take me as I am. Right, that was another very helpful uh article, I thought. I mean, it, it sort of dignified this guy. I mean, I'm referring to him as a psychotic punk. That's not exactly diplomatic language, but uh, how would you describe him? I, I, I would say he's a sort of very rich super brat who uh, is used to getting his way, and he has tortured, murdered, uh, stole his way to the top of the throne in in Saudi Arabia. There is no one who can effectively challenge him, although there are, there are still quite a few people who have probably more uh, legitimacy as the, as the next heir to the throne than, than he. And he's in total control. And he's basically reminding Biden of that uh, every, every single day. I still think that this whole playing out of oh, we can go to the Chinese, or we can go to the Russians, is going to... It, it, it's a bluff that needs to be called because the Chinese, I don't think, are ready remotely to uh, step into uh, uh, America's shoes in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, and, and absolutely neither are the Russians. Even, even if they wanted to you know, uh, swap sides, basically, this would take a long time to, to actually happen. So... I think America should play it cool and Biden should play it cool and not go cap in hand to Saudi Arabia um, and, and exert the levers he has. Maybe he should suddenly find a, a dramatic shortage of spare parts to his planes. That would send a, a message as well to Riyadh much more effectively than anything he could say. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, David, are there alternatives? I mean, I know the United States, they had a high-level uh, delegation sent to Caracas uh, a couple of weeks ago to talk with Maduro about reviving exports of or imports of Venezuelan oil, heavy crude, because the refineries on the Texas Gulf Coast are the ones that have been re refining that. Now they also refine Russian uh, heavy crude, which now has been boycotted. So I don't know whether that'll, what difference that's will make to the price of oil. Is there anything that, uh, I mean, obviously the JCPOA talks are underway, but now Russia's trying to s screw that up. Well, Russia, so, Russia's recently indicated that uh, they do accept the guarantee from the states that uh, uh, they won't be sanctioned for their part of the JCPOA. So the Iranians are telling me that the talks are back on again. Um, right. So, well, there is Iranian oil, for instance, that could now start coming onto the market. But How quickly could that happen, David? Well, that could happen quite soon. However, there's no denying that the 
the boycott of Russian oil is going to affect the Western economy, and and um, you're going to get America suddenly interested, or Britain as well, suddenly interested in fracking again, and everyone searching for alternatives. So there's absolutely no doubt that that uh, this is not cost free. So, just to broaden it out, then, how quickly can the U.S. or Qatar or anybody else supply? Western Europe with gas, if there's a cut on gas. I mean, Qatar, the 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 the, the, the contracts are completely secured anyway. Uh, Qatar is producing as much as it can. Uh, it can divert ships, but uh, it just can't produce more gas or 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 more ships. So there's, there's a there's a solid amount. There's a sort of finite amount that they can be produced. I think Western Europe will start. I mean, if there's a real emergency, uh, uh, I think they'll, they'll restart their coal. Uh, Germany and Italy in particular will start restarting their coal-fired power stations or even their nuclear program. You know, the, the Germany has completely closed down it, its nuclear program. That could come back on stream if there's a real emergency. At the moment, the uh, Germans are saying they've got enough gas uh, in, in, uh, in, in storage. But it will, it will be... It, 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 and Russian gas, by the way, is still flowing into Germany. Uh, it, it, it hasn't stopped, but I think the next winter will be the crunch. Um, I think the real uh, victims of, uh, of the Ukraine war will be the Middle East and Africa and all those countries that depend on Ukrainian and Russian wheat. That, 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 that's where it's really going to hurt in terms of commodity prices. I think rich Western Europe will be able to get by. Um, my heart's not bleeding for Europe um, uh, anyway. But it does bleed for poor Egyptians or Jordanians or the Lebanese. Um, and they are very, very vulnerable to a, uh, a rise in the price of, uh, of uh, sunflower oil and wheat. So just in the last minute, what are the chances of alternative energy? I mean, if we didn't have this addiction to oil or this necessity because we're not provided with alternatives or sufficient alternatives... When do you think the kind of zeitgeist is going to change here for a broader recognition? I I, I actually think that that, that one part of this is good in in the sense that it will force people to think about being uh, more economically uh, autonomous, certainly in terms of its its energy supplies. And and it will provide an incentive to uh, push forward on... on, uh, alternative and green uses of energy and also uh, and also to get people to actually cut down the energy that they use so i think in, in in the long run this is positive in the short run it will be painful well david hurst i thank you very much for joining us here today thank you and again i've been speaking with david hurst the editor of middle east eye he was formerly the chief foreign leader writer at the guardian former associate foreign editor european editor moscow bureau chief european correspondent and ireland correspondent at the guardian and his latest article at the middle east eye is putin's war means mohammed bin salman has biden over a barrel we're going to take a brief station break back looking into trump's war on american democracy which is aimed at making sure republicans will win in 2022 and that he will come back in 2024 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Harper, a professor at Northwestern University and a regular contributor to The American Lawyer. He blogs at the belly of the beast and has an article at Common Dreams. The war on democracy is here. Trump is using America's democratic process to destroy democracy from within. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Harper. Uh, thank you, Ian. It's good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's pretty ironic that Ukrainians are fighting and dying for democracy and the rule of law. And the former president of the United States is cheering on Vladimir Putin, who he calls a genius, and said he's fighting the war in Ukraine out of love. Is there likely to be any change now in the fact that Trump controls a Republican Party and the primary process, because that's where his the Trumpsters are are all fired up. So, what's the landscape look like since you you track the political landscape? Well, it's it's um, it's disturbing. If you look at the at the sort of the, the the way Trump and his allies are proceeding, really across the country, it's a state by state dismantling um, of of our democratic processes. You know, it, it started with the big lie and what he's now doing, um, particularly in key swing states, is, um, you know, sort of a multi-pronged attack. It's in, it includes uh, voter suppression. It includes uh, Trump promoting uh, candidates for critical statewide offices that most people would regard as previously anyway, as, as obscure and, and things you never heard of. You know, Secretary of State of, of a particular state is not something that's typically high on a, on a voter radar in terms of significance. But in most states, those are the people that are responsible for uh, certify, running elections and certifying final vote totals for purposes of the Electoral College. I would say that's sort of a second big prong. So you have voter suppression is one uh, big prong. The second prong is sort of putting in place allies um, who, they're really more than allies, they're really just uh, hacks that are going to, and have, have made no bones about it, uh, they've declared that Trump should have won, and they should have won in the ver- in various states where they're now campaigning for these offices, and they're going to be in a position to flip the result, uh, regardless of the popular vote totals in, in 20, uh, 2024, and they're running for office in 2022. And then the third thing that's happening is, is also simultaneously is a, is a general undermining of uh, continuing the trend that uh, Trump started before the election of voter confidence in the integrity of the election itself. And you're seeing that, you saw that play out in a very big way in the Maricopa County, Arizona audit, which became a, a really big, you know, that was sort of their cause celeb for, for Trump and Republicans, and it turned into a de- debacle for them, um, and actually netted Biden at the end of the day, another 360 votes in Arizona. But yet Trump persists and he continues even in interviews um, to this day saying, look at Arizona, you know, look at the audit, look at the findings. Well, if you actually look at the audit and you look at the findings, they're a disaster for Trump and the Republicans. But you see that kind of pattern repeating itself in swing states throughout the country um, where, again, the, the whole issue is, you know, it's a, it's a solution in search of a problem that didn't exist. Um, there's no voter fraud. There's not been any evidence of voter fraud. Um, and, and yet that, that's sort of the, the three-pronged attack uh, that you're seeing Trump and his allies wage on the entire democratic process. And it's a dismantling of democracy state by state. 
So specifically by targeting these races for Secretary of State, he's got his candidates right in, in a lot of the key states, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, and in Georgia, to name a few, right? Yep. And yep. how are they and, doing in the polls? Because they're spending, well, aren't they throwing a lot of money in? Normally there's not a lot of money in these races, but I believe Trump and his allies are pouring money into these races. Yep, some they are and some they aren't. I mean, one of the one of the poster children for for Secretary of State is the person that Trump has endorsed in uh, Michigan, uh, Christina Caramo, um, who is a uh, is a is a Trumpist. She she claimed that uh, uh, right after the election that that the that the the insurrection or right after the insurrection I should say that it was the it was uh, Antifa. Uh, pretending to be uh, Trump supporters, which is nonsense. Um, she appeared and spoke at the QAnon convention uh, last fall, um, and is um, is is the leading fundraiser among the various uh, GOP competitors for the Republican nomination uh, for Secretary of State in Michigan. Um, so the real the really unfortunate part is that you know these 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 candidates. Uh, because of the nature of the tr- Trump's base and the loyal support that he engenders, um, are, are faring very well. In fact, they're they're faring so well that even the candidates that are not as outspoken as someone like Karamo is, uh, are loath to to say anything that might put them crossways um, you know, with Trump. So it's um, it's 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 a party-wide problem. It's a Republican party-wide problem. Um, and and there's no there's no there's no easy solution for it other than for voters to make sure that that those people don't win. But the voters who show up in Republican primaries are the more ideological ones, and they're the ones that support Trump. So well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And 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 as and as you all know, and history teaches us, um, a well a well organized. Um, you know, enthusiastic minority can can do a lot to take control of a, of a party and ultimately uh, of a country. Now, the only good news in all of this, I would say, is that there is a decent chance if you can get sufficient um, knowledgeable, uh, both non-Trump Republicans uh, as well as Democrats and and as well as independents. Um, to recognize some of these extremists for who they are, for the positions that they stand for, and to recognize that what they really are doing, they're, they're really promote what they're promoting is, and the only way I can think about this is, is something akin, it's, it's really akin to a cult. Uh, I am not a psychologist, but um, it, sure, it sure looks, that's sure the way it looks um, most of the time in terms of the Republican Party. Um, you know, look at how they turn on a dime uh, if Trump turns on a particular issue. Um, and um, so the, the hope is that the, the extreme Trump faction of the Republican Party, even if it prevails in the primaries, will be so far out that um, in a general election they, they, will, uh, they, will, uh, they will lose. And again, I'm speaking with Stephen Harper, who's a professor at Northwestern University and a regular contributor to The American Lawyer. He blogs at the belly of the beast and has an article of Common Dreams, The War on Democracy is Here. Trump is using America's democratic process to destroy democracy from within. So what's happening then in terms of Mike Pence uh, 
is taking on Trump in a Pence kind of way, which is kind of pathetic, but he's at least contradicting him after being a pathetic sort of loyal puppet over those four years. Now, at least he's distancing himself from Trump over Ukraine, and whereas Trump, of course, is praising Putin. And I'm wondering what kind of traction Pence has with the Trump people. I don't imagine, I mean, after they were chanting Hang Mike Pence on January the 6th, I imagine he's not popular with them, but how's this um, Ukraine war and Trump's pro-Russian stance playing? Is it affecting the equation at all? Uh, I think it's putting Republicans, including uh, people like Mike Pence, um, in a very in a very uncomfortable position, um, because what Trump is doing, the things that he's saying, uh, are so at odds with um, with the reality that we see on our our TV screens. You know, you see the death and the destruction. You see the the what really looks like. Uh, uh, crazed uh, conduct and behavior on, behar- on behalf of Putin. You know, he sits in these offices, you know, with 20 or 30 foot long tables uh, separating him from everyone else in the room. Um, and, you, and you do really get the sense that this is somebody, and, and I'm not the first one to say this by any means, and I'm by no means a Putin expert, uh, but you do get the feeling, as others who know him uh, and have studied him for a lot longer have said, that you have a guy who's unhinged. Um, and I think it's putting, I think that anything that, that Trump has done to sort of line himself up with Putin, which is nothing new for Trump, as you and I know, we've talked about it over the years, the whole Trump-Russia saga, is it's all of a piece. And, and I think it's making Repo- polit- Republican politicians squeamish. I don't think it's bothering Trump's base much at all, as near as I can tell. Uh, I, I haven't seen any evidence that his his support in in terms of the you know, voters, I guess we'll find out um, as some of these primary elections unfold. We'll find out if it, if it has an impact or if it has an enduring impact. But um, um, it, it, we'll have to see. You know, the, uh, the, the article that you referenced is actually one of a series that I've done and am doing uh, uh, on a state-by-state basis, uh, you know, with, in addition to Arizona and Pennsylvania uh, and Georgia, um, which I've already completed. I'm now working on uh, Michigan and Wisconsin in terms of, you know, the the way this is all unfolding in terms of, of Trump's effort to, to subvert democracy. Uh, where does it all lead? I don't know. I think you've got a lot of Republicans, including Pence, including Bill Barr. I wrote about him uh, last week for Common Dreams. You know, Barr is on a rehabilitation tour because all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's some taint associated with Trump. Um, so he's trying to rewrite his personal history, as as many of them as many of them are, but as you correctly note, they were they were lap dogs and, and enablers for for four years, and and um, they're all now we're all now reaping what they what he sowed. So, how are these Senate candidates that Peter Thiel, the pro-Trump tech billionaire, is funding J.D. Vance in Ohio and this uh, guy Masters, no relation to me, I might add, um, <laughs> in in Arizona. Right. How are they um, doing? I don't. I you know it's very hard to tell because there's there is not a lot of polling that happens uh, with respect to those people. Um, you know, with with respect to Republican primaries that are still a ways out. Um, some of the uh, some of the sort of uh, initial polls, for example, the one in Pennsylvania shows that the you know the Trump 
the Trump loyalists are doing very well, you know, among Republican, likely Republican primary voters. Now, a lot of that, even that polling was prior to Putin's incursion. It's not really an, even an incursion. It's an invasion. It's an attack. Um, uh, so how that will change the equation, I'm not sure. Although it's interesting, I did see a poll the other day that said that 77% of people approve of the way uh, of the of the U.S. position in terms of the war. Although now here's one that you can have a hard time wrapping your arms around: 49% disapprove of the way Biden is handling the war. So figure that one out and then tell me what it means. I, I can't, but. Um, it, you know, it does suggest that there could be, there, there's a, at a very minimum, there's some dissonance, uh, cognitive dissonance that Republicans who vote uh, in these primaries are going to experience. I mean, Vance, you said, you mentioned Vance. He's a great example. You know, his his initial response was, you know, why do I care? It was something along the lines of, you know, I don't care what happens to the people in Ukraine. And then somebody told him, guess what? There's some Ukrainians in Ohio that vote. Um, and so now he's he's sort of walking all that back or trying to. Um but but I don't know. I, it's hard to tell how they're doing, which is why the test will come when the primary voting begins um, as early as May in some states like Pennsylvania. So in terms of Trump coming back in 2024, which is the ultimate nightmare, and there's no question that he's running and he's laying the groundwork, as, as, as you have been investigating, Stephen Harper, at the state level, and he's targeting the Secretary of State offices to, in key swing states, so if you can put Trumpsters in those offices, it doesn't matter what the vote is. You know, it's like the old statement of uh, Joseph Stalin, doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts the vote. That's right. Uh, so that's what we're faced with now. So how will the midterms reflect on Trump's broader strategy for 2024? In other words, right. is it possible that some of these Trump people won't make it and that might diminish his chances for 2024? Yes. Um, I, I think that's, in fact, I think that's why the 2022 elections in November are so critical in these statewide offices, because whatever happens in 2022, who, the people who win those elections uh, and the key ones, as you point out, are Secretary of State as well as Governor. Pennsylvania is kind of a unique case because the governor in Pennsylvania picks the Secretary of State uh, uh, it's not an elected office. Um, but that's why the November 22 midterm elections at the state level are, at least to my thinking, at least as important, maybe in some ways more important to the fate of democracy than whatever happens with, you know, the federal elections uh, in terms of the Senate and the House of Representatives. I think people expect, I don't know if they're right or not, but I think people expect that the Republicans have a good chance to regain control of the House. Um, I think the Democrats have a pretty good chance of hang, hanging on to control in the Senate. But there's so much that's up for grabs because, you know, the difficulty is, and this is the real nub of the problem, I think, Ian, it's very, very hard to get people to think about abstract notions like American democracy um, because it just feels like it's inevitable. It just feels like that's something that could never disappear. It could never be a problem. And they look at Ukraine and they say, yeah, but, you know, that's Ukraine. And so what, they, what, what, what tends to happen is um, people focus on, but, boy, look at the price of my gasoline. 
um, you know, what's what's happening with COVID. You know, those are two those are the two big drivers, I think, in terms of how people are going to vote. And the thing that may matter most to the future of their of themselves and their children and their grandchildren is going to be what happens in areas that are not related to the pandemic and they're not related to the price of gas this year. They're related to the fate, the very real fate of democracy uh, in America. So it's very, very difficult to get people's attention on something that seems so, um, I don't know, theoretical almost to them. It's not real. Unless it's personal, it's not real to, to far too many people. Um, the only good thing, I guess you could say, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even characterize it as a good thing, but the only thing you can say about Ukraine that might be a little bit helpful for people in understanding it is this is what it looks like. Ukraine is what it looks like when someone attacks democracy in a very obvious, overt, overt way. Um, uh, and, but, the, but the end result can be just as ugly if it happens from within. Uh, in a way that is uh, less obvious to people as it is occurring. Well, maybe Biden uh, next week in uh, Brussels at, his, at the NATO conference can address the issues of democracy in a way that maybe appeal to American voters, but I'm not sure that presidential speeches, particularly from Biden, who's not that great at any rate, make a lot of difference. So. What, no, I think you're right. I, I, I think you're right. I think, and that's why I think at the end of the day, you know, people tend to vote based on how they feel. How do they feel they're doing? How, how mm-hmm. are things going for them? You know, and and in that respect, you know, I, I fault the Democrats because if you just look objectively at some of the achievements that the Biden administration has already had, um, you know, the infrastructure package, which was a monumental, historic uh, thing uh, to happen. Um, you know, he's he's I have I have disagreements with certain of his a, certain aspects of the way he, he's been handling the pandemic, but it's light years ahead of anything Trump was doing in his mishandling it and misleading uh, people about the pandemic. Um, if you look at even even things like foreign policy, you know, uh, people became so accustomed to to Trump saying things like, well, what's so bad? Why can't we get along with Putin? You know, what would be so bad? Would it be that bad if we got along with Putin? And And it became kind of a, well, gee, maybe it's not that big a deal. Maybe Russia's not that big a deal. Um, and it, and it's, only, it's only when you have these sort of stark events that feel very real to people, um, and I'm not sure Ukraine is real enough for people to understand the significance of the loss of democracy or the erosion of democracy. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult to get their attention and, and even more difficult to get their vote. Well, Stephen Harper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. Thanks for, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to your listeners as well. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Harper, who's a professor at Northwestern University and a regular contributor to The American Lawyer. He blogs at the belly of the beast and has an article at Common Dreams, The War on Democracy is Here. Trump is using America's democratic process to destroy democracy from within. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining some good news for a change on the labor front.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Greenhouse, who was a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014, where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. And he's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And he has an article at The Guardian, U.S. Union See Unusually Promising Moment Amid Wave of Victories. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Greenhouse. Always nice to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's nice to hear that the unions are doing well because all we ever hear over the years is how unions are weakening and weakening. And of course, the statistics are pretty bad in that regard. But you see a fairly optimistic landscape developing, I take it. Yes and no. I mean, there are definitely some optimistic developments, Ian. You know, we've seen these uh, highly visible, much publicized unionization victories at Starbucks, where they've won six out of seven. And workers have petitioned now at 140 Starbucks in 27 states for union elections. Uh, We saw this big union victory at REI, the first ever attempted in REI here in New York. And then there was a very big union victory uh, at the New York Times, where 600 tech workers voted to unionize. We've seen university researchers in California vote to unionize. We've seen many museum workers in Chicago and Los Angeles and New York vote to unionize. So in many ways, it is an optimistic picture. And one of the, you know, you know, for union folks, one of the, you know, most optimistic aspects is much of this is bottom up, you know, especially at, at Starbucks and REI. This is not top-down organizing. This is really bottom-up. Now, on the other hand, you know the annual numbers put out by the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that the percentage of workers in unions declined last year, even though many workers were very pissed off about how they were treated during the pandemic. They felt they weren't given enough personal protection equipment. They were angry they weren't given hazard pay. They were wor- they were upset that you know some employers, you know some retailers let shoppers into the stores without masks. And even though there's all this worker anger, the percentage of workers in unions decreased rather than increased. But the hope, Ian, is that with this recent wave of the past few weeks and the upcoming wave of votes at Starbucks, that will generate a you know burst, a surge of excitement that can somehow translate into you, you know increased unionizations, not just at Starbucks and REI, but perhaps at McDonald's or perhaps at Chipotle or perhaps at Walmart or perhaps at Whole Foods. And the question is, how do how does the labor movement, how do workers get from these, you know, this initial wave of victories right now into something bigger and larger and better? Well, as your article points out, while recent union wins fuel optimism, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported in January that 10.3% of workers are in unions and just 6.1% in the private sector. In the 1950s, more than one in three private sector workers were in unions. In the 1980s, more than one in five. Now it's just one in 16. So it's it's an uphill fight. Yeah, so you know, in my book, Ian, I Beaten Down Worked Up, I explained that in the United States, corporations fight harder against unions and unionization efforts than corporations in any other wealthy industrial nation. You know, American corporations fight much harder against unions than, you know, than companies in Britain or France or Germany or Spain or Italy or Australia or Japan. Um, 
And that, to my mind, is the main reason that we've seen the percentage of workers in unions decline is that corporate America fights so, so hard and makes it so hard. And, you know, look at the effort now to unionize Amazon. Um, it lost in the first effort in Bessemer, Alabama, but the National Labor Relations Board ruled or found that um, Amazon had acted illegally, so they've ordered a new election. And I expect the union to get many more votes this time than last time, but still it's very, very hard to win at a place like Amazon because Amazon mounts this super aggressive anti-union effort requiring workers to go to anti-union meetings, putting up big anti-union banners, and even putting up anti-union posters in the toilet stalls. So when you're on the can, you're forced to read this anti-union propaganda. Meanwhile, under American law, a corporation like Amazon or Walmart or Target can prohibit union organizers from setting foot on company property, even from setting foot in the company parking lot. And so that there's this huge imbalance in the access that the corporation and its anti-union lawyers and anti-union consultants have in, in communicating with the workers compared with, you know, you know, that it's much harder for the union to communicate. It can't step foot on company property. And again, I'm speaking with Stephen Greenhouse, who was a reporter for The New York Times from 1983 to 2014, where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent, and as the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present and Future of American Labor. And he has an article at The Guardian, U.S. Unions See Unusually Promising Moment Amid Wave of Victories. So, given uh, that President Biden is very pro-union and the National Labor Relations Board has changed and the Department of Labor has changed. I mean, under Trump, of course, it was led by this lawyer who made that sweetheart deal for Jeffrey Epstein, pretty disgraceful to say the least. And then Scalia's son, whose entire legal career was fighting unions, uh, was made the uh, Secretary of Labor. So how much difference does it make having a labor-friendly president and then a labor-friendly cabinet? So my answer is some. I'm not ready to say it's not making any difference. I'm not ready to say it's going to make a huge difference. You know, so on one hand, the National Labor Relations Board under Biden is very worker-friendly. It's generally been more aggressive than the labor board under Obama, under Clinton, under Jimmy Carter. It's acting faster to defend workers when they are retaliated against for wanting to unionize. You know, just today, Ian, or actually last night, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, you know, filed charges against Starbucks for allegedly retaliating against pushing out two workers, two Starbucks baristas in Phoenix who were helping lead the unionization drive. And often the Labor Board might take months, even years to bring a charge, but the Labor Board really brought the charge within days because it sees that Starbucks is getting increasingly aggressive in, in in allegedly retaliating against workers who are seeking to unionize it. You know, Starbucks fired seven of the uh, top uh, union activists in Memphis, and then now these these two in Phoenix are pushed out. So on one hand, the NRB is kind of, you know, under its general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, is kind of doing as much as it can to help unions. On the other hand, you know, President Biden has very good, strong pro-union rhetoric, probably the most pro-union comments, rhetoric of any 
president in American history, even more than the great pro-union president Franklin Roosevelt. On the other hand, uh, you know, President Biden has stumbled into the perennial problem of GOP filibusters. He has sponsored, he is backing the most pro-union legislation since the Great Depression, uh, a bill called the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which would make it easier to unionize by uh, increasing fines on companies that illegally retaliate against workers when they when they seek to unionize. But unfortunately, you know, for Biden and the Democrats and unions, that legislation has been blocked by a Republican filibuster. So the PRO Act is not happening. And of course, we've seen the difficulty that Democrats have, particularly with Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema. And Manchin just gave the Republicans the vote they needed to kill the um, nominee for the Federal Reserve, who they didn't like because she was concerned about climate change and felt that the Fed should take a role in fiscal policies to address climate change. So it's pretty unfortunate that you can find Democrats who, uh, even though Manchin supposedly supports unions in West Virginia, uh, seems to be able to vote with the Republicans. So, so, you know, so Manchin actually supports the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which is nice. However, he supports maintaining the filibuster. And as long as the filibuster uh, continues, it will, you know, be virtually impossible to enact the protecting the right to organize act. So on one hand, Manchin could say, look, I'm pro-union, I support this. But the other hand, in effect, by wanting to preserve the filibuster, he ends up, you know, siding with the Republicans who are eager to kill this bill. Um, I want to make one other point about the optimism we're seeing with these unionization victories at uh, Starbucks, REI, the New York Times, you know, adjunct professors, um, university researchers, uh, grad students. So, you know, there is, you know, what's very encouraging right now for union folks is that there is all this bottom-up energy, especially at Starbucks. And and a lot of people are saying, well, we need labor unions and, and you know, to spend more money to send more organizers so that this bottom-up effort really is met by, you know, organized labor, by the institution of labor to, like, facilitate uh, this bottom-up movement to, you know, make it, you know, help them sign up workers, help them uh, help provide lawyers when, when rank-and-file workers are fired for wanting to unionize. And, you know, there's been, you know, this big debate within organized labor that are, are labor unions spending too much money on politics? Should they be spending more money on organizing? And some union leaders say, yeah, I, I agree, we should do more to organize, but I worry that if we spend, you know, a hundred thousand or five hundred thousand on this big unionization drive, things are tilted so much against unions. Um, you know, as as we're seeing with Amazon and and how it has so much more access to workers than do the unions. Some union leaders will say it just isn't a good bet, a sure enough bet to warrant spending a hundred thousand dollars or five hundred thousand dollars on a unionization drive. So a lot of unions spend a whole lot of money on politics in the hope that something like the Protecting the Right to Organize Act will be enacted and thereby make it easier to unionize. But, you know, time and again, under this, the fifth Democratic president now who's backed legislation to make it easier to unionize, and each time it's been blocked by a, Republic, by a Republican filibuster. So some people say, look, if we really want to strengthen the labor movement, unions got to get much, much more aggressive in backing, you know, this bottom-up energy to 
help ensure that more people can unionize and do unionize? Well, that is obviously going to continue, right, the the union attitude about putting money into politics as opposed to organizing. In this election year, with a critical election coming up in November, surely, Stephen, they're going to be concerned about the Democrats losing their majority in the House and in the Senate. And boy, if the Democrats could get more Senate seats, it'd be out of the question to reach the filibuster threshold, but at least not to have to contend with Manchin and Cinema. That'd be pretty helpful, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I agree with this with these folks who say. Uh, unions should do less in politics. I, you know, I think unions play an extremely important role in politics, especially in some of the the you know crucial swing states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. You know, the hotel workers union played a large unheralded unheralded role in Arizona, helping flip Arizona from red to blue and 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 to back Biden. So, you know, I do think you know that. You know, so you know, you see all these conservatives saying, oh, unions spend too much money in politics, you know, they, they they support the Democrats too much, and they say unions should get totally out of politics, and like, they're calling for like unilateral disarmament by unions, while the Koch network and corporations spend a gazillion dollars on, on, on politics, and often backing Republicans, they're saying, you know, unions should cease and desist and stop trying to be a countervailing force, a counter, a counter force to conservatives and Republicans and business interest in politics. And I think that would be foolish because, you know, unions, you know, are the collective voice of workers and, and, and in helping elect pro worker politicians, they help increase the minimum wage, help, you know, lead to, you know, having better people on the national labor relations board, having better people at OSHA to protect workers against um, dangers on the job. So, you know, I think the question is, Ideally, we want unions to do more organizing and do more in politics, but uh, they only have a finite amount of money and they need to use it as wisely as possible to strengthen workers' voice on the job through organizing and strengthening workers' voice in politics in Washington through, you know, through politics, through elections, through campaigning. So just in the last uh, few minutes, Stephen, the article points out that even when workers win union elections, corporations often drag their feet for years before ever reaching a union contract. So that's, uh, I didn't realize that that was another tactic. So it's an uphill battle to unionize, as we've seen uh, in Bessemer, Alabama with Amazon. But if you get a victory, they still have ways to frustrate uh, unions. So it's not uh, clearly not a level playing field, to say the least. Right. So... Uh... So once workers unionize, one third of those successful unionization efforts don't have a contract. You know, half of them don't have a contract within the first year. And, and, and so companies know that they could stall and make the union look bad. And so they kind of, to my mind, many companies deliberately drag their feet and their expensive you know, $1,000 an hour lawyers are telling them, you know, don't rush to sign a union contract, really drag it out. And that helps anger workers against the union helps turn workers against the union and and there's very little um very few teeth in the law to require employers to negotiate and and, and 
you know, rapidly to negotiate in good faith. The law says, you know, you have to negotiate in good faith. You, you can't negotiate in bad faith, but it's really, really hard to win a case proving, showing that an employer is negotiating in bad faith. So as part of the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, there's a provision that calls for that says when there's a new unionization victory and negotiations start that if no new contract is reached, I think it's within four months, maybe within six months, then the federal government gets to appoint an arbitrator that try that kind of says this will be a fair deal between the two sides to help make sure that you know the negotiations aren't dragged out for a year or two or three at a time. Well, just in closing then, is there something you can tell us on an uh, optimistic vein? I know you... Sure. I mean, so, you know, I wrote that, you know, so back in December, there was the first unionization victory at a Starbucks out of the 9,000 corporate-owned Starbucks in the country. And, and, you know, even though it was just, you know, 25, 30 workers voting, that was seen as a humongous victory because you beat one of the most prestigious companies in the country, which mounted a hugely aggressive, fierce anti-union drive, you know, sending managers from around the country into Buffalo to flood the stores and, and, and tell workers how awful unions are. And nonetheless, in two of the three stores that voted in Buffalo, uh, workers voted to unionize, and now five of the six that voted in Buffalo have voted to unionize. So that's created a lot of excitement. It's kind of, you know, the dam has burst, the water has, you know, the floodgates are open now to unionization drives at Starbucks. And I wrote this op-ed saying, you know, it would be smart if unions, you know, all unions around the country sent organizers, you know, to every city of the country, there are Starbucks to, so that thousands of Starbucks would be unionizing. And once, if and when you have this energy to unionize all these Starbucks and you get, you know, 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 or 9,000 Starbucks unionized, then you try to move on with that momentum and energy to try to move on to McDonald's or Taco Bell or Burger King, or, you know, um, or Jimmy John's or whatever. And you really have to, capitalize on the moment and you know certainly the starbucks workers on a bottom-up level are really trying to move the dial to you know, really move towards unionizing hundreds of starbucks but i don't think the labor movement is the labor movement overall is doing enough to make the most of this moment and the question now now and i the question i really raise in this article in the guardian today is will the overall labor movement will the dozens and dozens of major unions in the United States you know step forward step up to really do the most they can with this moment and all this worker energy you know workers are unhappy about how they were treated in the pandemic workers are unhappy about income inequality young workers are unhappy about uh, the huge amount of student debt many many workers are unhappy that their wages are not keeping up with inflation and rising housing prices so there's a lot of worker energy and worker frustration that I think is ready you know, to back unionization efforts. And the question is whether the overall union movement will seize the moment to make the most out of it. Well, Stephen Greenhouse, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, very good to talk, Ian. Be well.
Same to you, Stephen. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Greenhouse, who was a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014, where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. And he's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And he has an article at The Guardian, U.S. Unions See Unusually Promising Moment Amid Wave of Victories. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half